your time together. So we are working through the fruit of the Spirit. And the second uh, fruit of the Spirit is joy. And it is clear from the Word of God that God came to share His joy with us. Now think about that. God came to share His joy with us. Now if you don't believe me, Let's look at a few passages. So let's go to the first one. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Hmm, something to meditate on. Next verse. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There it is again. Next verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. Ooh. All joy and hope as you trust in him so that you may overflow with peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. And so Jesus says, remain in me and my love so that your joy may be complete. Paul says that the evidence of God's kingdom on earth is both peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then he prays that all God's people would be filled with joy. So there it is. The biblical evidence is in. And to that I say, wow. God, we get to be filled with the joy of God. That's what it says. I mean, these are wonderful truths. But if you're anything like me, you probably have questions. And you have questions not only about love, as we talked about the last couple of Sundays, but you have questions about joy. Maybe the first question is, why aren't I more joyful? Right? Or maybe another question is, is God really joyful? Is that your image of him? Or maybe, does God really want me to have his joy? Really? And of course, the most basic question of all is, what is it? What is joy? Right? All kinds of questions. That's how my brain functions. I'm always asking questions. Okay. So I'm going to try to answer the questions, maybe not all in the, right, in the same uh, weight for each question, but I'll try. And not necessarily in that order. So first question, next slide. Is God, oh, sorry, you're on the right slide, sorry. Is God joyful? 
I mean, that's an important question because if someone says to you, I can help you become a joyful person, okay? Now, people don't say that, but in a sense, our culture presents itself to you with this, with this promise, right? I can make you joyful. But the person who made you this promise looks like Oscar, Oscar the Grouch. Do you know him? I'm a, I'm a 60s, 70s kid, so you know I have to go back to... And, and Archie Bunker, oh, that's a real 70s image. Some of you people my gen, you know Archie Bunker, right? I mean, if there are people like that, you go, right, I'm not sure if I trust you, Right? You promise to give me joy? So you can't expect at all to learn much of anything from these type of fellows, Oscar the Grouch or Archie Bunker or whoever. But unfortunately, some people view God like Oscar the Grouch. Hands folded, looking down from heaven, a tad angry, They imagine God to be a prude, some killjoy, who is always angry. So to imagine that God is joyful, if that is your thinking or the way you were raised, to call God joyful is really actually quite stunning, right? I know people try to draw pictures of God, but I don't really see a lot of happy pictures of God. In the Old Testament, God was angry with Israel because of sin and rebellion. However, we have to look at the greater story. I mean, I, I, can't, I don't have time to talk about the goodness and love and joy of God throughout creation, but, but even in this event of of when God was angry, it came after this incredible exodus event where he rescued his people and he loved his people and he loved on his people and they saw his might and his power. But just because he is angry doesn't mean God is always angry or this is important or that by nature he is angry. Because I just wonder if people have this thinking in their minds. Well, God's just angry, right? He's never quite pleased with us. But some of God's core attributes are love, as we talked about last Sunday, holiness, sovereignty. But anger is not an attribute of God, okay? His righteous anger, because that's what it is, is actually an extension of those attributes that I just mentioned, right? It is an extension of his care and compassion. And so in the story of Israel, it's an extension of his care for his people because he knows what's best for them, right? So we have to really understand this greater story. In fact, Exodus 24, 6 says this, God is compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's a beautiful verse. Now let me express it to you from a human perspective. Um, My mother was angry with me when I was a child, I don't know, 
11, 12 years old, and I told you about this last week, when I told my sister in Japanese that she had legs like giant Japanese radishes. Okay? I use the Japanese word, phrase, daiko and ashi. <clears throat> Robbie says that's the only thing he remembers about my sermon last week. <laughs> Man. Now, did my mother have the right to be angry with me? Yeah, I think my sister was pretty glad that I said she said something, right? Okay. Of course she had the right to be angry with me. I mean, my words were horrible. They were demeaning. But that doesn't mean my mother is an angry person. See what I mean? Actually, you know, my mom is like calm cucumber personality. <laughs> And, uh, and, and she just doesn't get mad, you know? She's patient. And she wise. she's wise. And so when she comes along, and her anger wasn't, you know, flipping out anger. She was firm, right? But why did she do that? Because she cares about her son to live a right life. And so it was all done in love. So in the same way, God expresses his righteous anger, and he allows you sometimes to go through hardship because he loves us. And so Proverbs 3.12, which is quoted by the author of Hebrews later on, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And God is delighted when his children walk in the truth. But let's get back to joy here. Jesus said again, I'll repeat verse 11 of, chapter, of John 15, that my joy be in you. Whose joy? His joy. His joy. There you go. He's talking about Jesus' joy, his joy. But Jesus is also, of course, speaking about God himself because Jesus is God in human flesh, in a human body. And so joy is God himself. Joy is God. He's the essence of joy, right? It just, it doesn't, um, it's not something we think about that often. I think we... Uh, when the Bible, the Bible speaks very much about God as love, right? And we understand that. But this joy as God is we don't think about that very often. But there it is. He wants to give us his joy. I mean, this is profound. Perfect joy, to go further, is actually found within the divine relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. It's hard to picture. But this is a living, dynamic, perfect holy, loving, and joyful relationship found within the Godhead. Okay? And that's where we learn community and friendship and commitment is from who God is. God is joyful. Second question, does God want us to have joy? Does God want us to have joy? Yes, he sure is, or he sure does, sorry. Uh, next slide, uh, Benno. Jesus says, I have come that you might have joy and have it to be complete. Now, how do we know this? 
The coming of Jesus, of course, is the gospel story, the joyful story of good news. Think about it. The gospel means good news. That means happy news. This is joyful news. You know, the, the, the very essence of our story as Christians is about good news. Well, there, it's right at the heart of it all, right? So incredibly, God through Jesus Christ came to us as a human being to share in our sorrow, in our dirty dish that we heard about, in our sin, and to share with us his joy with us. He's interested in a renovation project in our lives. And he endured suffering and death because he knew by doing so he would defeat evil, Satan, sin, and pave the way for our salvation. So when Jesus was born, the angels proclaimed, don't be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. So there it is again. Luke 2.10. And after Jesus left the earth, God fulfilled his promise by giving us his spirit so that the people of faith, in, who have faith in Jesus, could flourish in joy. Now last Sunday we sang the song, The Joy of the Lord is My Strength. We sang it a whole week earlier before this theme of joy because we are so excited and anticipating, of course. <laughs> But you know where it comes from. It comes actually from a hidden verse in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. So there it is. God is joyful, and he came so that we could flourish in his joy. But we must understand that happiness and joy are not all the same. The joy that we're talking about is far deeper and far meaningful or profound than happy feelings. You know, happiness must be a billion-dollar industry based on the amount of books that you find on happiness. And so out of curiosity, I just typed in happiness in Amazon.ca just under the book section, okay? And I found 60,000 titles that show up for happiness, so, I'm not sure how to, you know, deduce that, but apparently, at least 60,000 people think they have their recipe on what it means to be happy. Maybe something like that. I'm not sure. Okay? So, of course, happiness has been talked about forever. Uh, there is an economist by the name of Richard Layer, and he defined happiness this way. He says, happiness, happiness is feeling good, and misery is feeling bad. Uh, I kind of laugh because it wasn't very profound to me. It's like, yeah, duh. <laughs> um, but basically, this is what he says, because he goes on, and on the studies of happiness. He says, studies on happiness go out looking for people who are feeling good, and then they connect their happiness to the good things in their lives, such as a good income, a nice house, uh, a nice car, a good-looking spouse, cute children who win all the you know, trophies and, and win all the sports awards and yada, yada, yada. And they go on nice exotic vacations and they return with nice tans 
and they plastered on Facebook and then on Instagram, and without realizing it, we compare ourselves to them and say, oh, they're the successful, su- successful people, and if I don't measure up, then, then I'm not happy. Something like that. Okay? So that's kind of how roughly our culture ticks. And so Richard Laird uh, continues. He says this, As Western societies have got richer, their people have become no happier. Okay? We already know that the move from poverty to a comfortable life does increase a person's happiness. So we know that for sure. And it does make sense because you understand poverty is actually quite dehumanizing. And so this is why Jesus, when he came to earth, he challenged those who were wealthy to care for the poor, right? So it makes sense. Now, of course, God wants you to enjoy the fruit of your labors, right? We need to understand that. Enjoy your life. Enjoy the things that God gives you and what your income can give you. And so that's why, like today, you know, we can give thanks to God for all kinds of things, the harvest and all, you know, our families. But possessions in themselves, you know, um, don't bring us joy. They are good in themselves, they're great gifts from God, and we should enjoy them. But our culture's idea of happiness is about having more than the next person. So biblical scholar Scott McKnight uh, he calls this the hedonic treadmill. Um, hedonic, uh, you probably know the word hedonism, it basically means pleasure, right? So let's call it the pleasure treadmill. And um, in brief, the more we have, this is, this is the pleasure treadmill definition, the more we have, the more we want. And the more we want, the less we can get and the less we are happy, right? So our culture is often unhappy because they want that, but they can't get that because they can't afford that, and then it's this this vicious pleasure treadmill. And the treadmill just keeps on going, right? No off button on this one. Keeps on going, and what it does, if you're on it, it wears you down. Over 40 years ago, one of my pastors from my years in Calgary when I was a young adult, I just remember something he said. I mean, this is 40 years ago. And he just said, happiness depends on happenings. And I remember everyone laughing because it was so true and so right, right? If our happiness is dependent on our good happenings or good circumstances, or the need for more pleasures, the pleasure treadmill, we are running, of course, this whole vicious cycle. It is never quite completed. You know, if Jesus knew about treadmills, or treadmills happened to exist in his day, maybe he would have called it the treadmill of worry, because this is how he phrases it. Jesus said, do not worry about your life, what you should eat, and what you should drink, and what you should wear. 
right? There it is. But he says, for the pagans, that's people without God, run after all these things. They're on the treasure treadmill. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. A whole different perspective from Jesus' point of view. Joy flows from the gospel. Uh, Next slide. To understand joy, I want you to think about a river. The flow of a river. So in the life of Paul and mature believers, joy is not dependent on circumstances and pleasures, as we just said, or things like you know, financial success, etc., etc. But like a river, Paul's life was sustained by the good source of that river, and the source of that river was the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so in his letter to the Philippians, he begins the letter by saying, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. I mean, this was Paul's life to a T. Everything went all the way back to the gospel. And when other people got it, like he got it and understood it and grabbed it and lived with it, that gave him great joy. It's like, you get it. That's what should drive your life is the good news of Jesus. And Paul was filled with joy because even in persecution, these Philippians understood the source of their joy. It was a gospel. And so for Paul, joy flowed like a river directly from the gospel, which is a story about Jesus who suffered on a cross and he was buried and was raised to death and now is ruling as our exalted Savior and Messiah and Lord. You won't find this in happiness books. Most of us don't associate suffering like Paul does with the suffering and death of Jesus to gospel joy. Happiness books won't contain anything like that. And oftentimes we don't associate suffering and bad circumstances with joy. In fact, we think backwards. We think that's bad. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, For the joy set before him, speaking of Jesus, of course, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I mean, that's such a profound verse. Endurance on the cross and joy mixed in the same sentence? But there it is. The gospel is good news because it flows through the events of Jesus' suffering and death, finally to the resurrection, and then life in the Spirit. And even if we face suffering, when the gospel is flowing through our life, we can learn even greater joy. It's an opportunity for greater joy. The gospel-shaped flow is what brings us life and joy. Many happiness books will eliminate suffering and pain and bad circumstances. Did you know that Buddhism is a religion about the cessation of suffering, right? So, you know, they promote meditation, which is not bad in itself, but they're actually atheists. They don't really believe in God. They believe in 
doing things to decrease pain and suffering in the world, right? So they were trying to eliminate it. Um, Christianity is very different from that. But the gospel challenges us this kind of thinking altogether. So let's take a look at a snapshot of Paul's life, and you'd probably know this story. So he comes to the colony of Philippi. It's the northern coast of Greece. He meets a demon-possessed woman, and he casts out the demon from this person in the name of Jesus. Now, she's a slave, right? Because her owners are now ticked off because they can't use her slave to make money. And the hopes of making money is just dashed because, you know, she did things like fortune-telling and all that kind of thing. And so Paul and his uh, uh, partner Silas were traveling together on the missionary journey there. And they're, of course, dragged to the authorities. They are stripped and they were beaten with rods and then they're thrown into prison. Okay, so talk about bad circumstances, right? And then the joy part comes. And in the story, Acts 16.25, it says this. About midnight... When most of us are falling asleep, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So here they are singing, praising God. I mean, this story is profound. I mean, Paul and Silas, they're all about the gospel. They're all about the gospel for the Jew and now for the Gentile. That's why they're there. This is Gentile land. And there is no doubt some form of opposition and persecution would come. I mean, they knew that. But in the midst of this imprisonment, they break out in prayer and worship and song so that even their fellow inmates could hear them. And it wasn't a protest. They're simply worshiping God because they're tethered to the gospel, right? The flow of the river of the gospel is running through their lives. And not even this circumstance is going, to, is going to upset it. The joy of the Lord was evident because they knew that even in persecution, they are participating in the gospel. Their labors for Christ, they knew, were never in vain. And that is why Paul can say things like this. This comes from 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, there you go, there's another joy word, about my weaknesses. He said that. So that Christ's power may, will, may rest on me. And of course, that's the gospel, right? When we're weak, there is an opportunity for the power of God to descend upon that moment. And this is why, for Christ's sake, he continues, I delight in my weaknesses. Well, there's another joy word, right? Gladly, now delight. These are powerful words. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In weakness... Paul experienced God's grace and power. And that's the point. It's the gospel. It's about Jesus. That's the gospel flowing in his life. And that is why it it enabled him to boast gladly 
in his weakness and delight in them. These are words of joy. Why? Because he was suffering while participating in the gospel. God's grace sustained him. God's power flowed through him, making him even stronger. But there is more. You can buy one and you get two. Just kidding. You get way more than that. And it's free. Joy is to be shared. Joy is to be shared. Next slide. While Paul sings in jail, you know that the earthquake comes. Just shakes up the whole building. Springs them loose. And the jailer is in deep trouble because he thought his inmates have gone free, gone free. I mean, who wouldn't, right? But the gospel of joy is flowing through Paul and Silas, and he, instead of running from the jailer to gain his freedom, he calms him down. My goodness. You know something is flowing through this guy other than something else, right? And the jail, jail, jailer just was just about to fall on his own sword because he was afraid of what the Roman authorities would do to him. And Paul said, hey, don't harm yourself. Don't do that. We are all here still. And the jailer realized that Paul was a different man than anyone else he's ever met. And so he drops to his knees and he's still trembling. And he asks Paul, sirs, What must I do to be saved? You know, I can only really think about the fact that the jailers and the other inmates, they heard the gospel story through Paul and Silas. We know in song for sure, right? But probably through other means as well. And so he turned to Paul and he observed Paul's contentment and even joy that he could sing these songs while in jail and he knew this is a guy that he could talk to. And so he asked, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul shares with him. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. What's going on? Living in, living in the gospel life God now has flowed to him, and now he's giving it away. Even in the worst circumstances, the river flow the gospel from Christ to Paul, now from Paul to this jailer and his family. It's not all happening. The jailer, it says, was filled with joy. There it is. Because he had come to believe in God. I mean, we can't draw this stuff up, right? Only God does the stuff, right? I mean, you read a story like this and you just know it's a God moment. God's joy passes to Paul's joy. Paul's joy passes to the jailer's joy. All because of the gospel. So what is joy? Joy, I think, is an inner satisfaction. An inner contentment. 
that comes to those whose life has been transformed by the gospel, the joyful news of Jesus. If we know that we are in Jesus Christ this morning and our location is in him, we live in participation of the gospel. And not even bad circumstances can remove you from God's joy. Even in difficult circumstances and challenges, when we experience suffering through the flow of the gospel in our lives, we still can know God's joy. One more thing. Next slide. Choose joy. You know, I don't mean to say that God's joy is something that you can create in your own power. We've already said, joy is the fruit of the what? Spirit, right? It's so simple, but it's profound. It comes from God. It comes from the Spirit. This means joy flourishes in the follower of Christ through the inner working of the Spirit in your life. So somehow we have to join up with the Spirit is what Paul is saying. Walk with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. But let's go to Jesus' words. And you know them well. John 15. Abide in me and I in you. There it is again. Joy comes as a result of a living relationship, just as the vine is this living plant that gives life to its branches. When you live in this relationship with God, and you feed upon His Word, and you submit to Him, and you listen to His voice, and you obey Him, that's when the fruit gets activated. But it needs to be said, joy does not happen by accident. Joy does not happen by accident. In fact, I would say sometimes you need to fight for joy just because the circumstances are sometimes rough. And so when Paul was in jail, I think he was fighting for joy. What does he do? He goes right back to the gospel. This is about Jesus. This is about God. Therefore, I will praise him, even though things look really sour right now, right? So, I've put some verses on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. That one really ticks me off sometimes. Always, you know? It's like, but it says, joy always, rejoice always. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, 1 Corinthians 13.11. Then the famous one, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he has to repeat himself because he thinks it's important. I say it again, rejoice, just in case no one got it the first time. Why? Because Paul understands the absolute value of rejoicing even when we don't feel like it. When you feel like it, go for it, obviously. But when you don't feel like it, maybe this is where we need it more. 
You know, sometimes we stumble over an objection. Maybe we say this, surely we can't be commanded to be joyful, can we? Yet every single one of Paul's phrases are actually commands, imperatives. He is commanding us to move out and rejoice, to fight for joy as he did in prison. I appreciate the wisdom of Scott McKnight, and he says this, Commanding us to rejoice suggests that joy is within our capacity to choose. I think that's very important. I think he's very right. We don't wait until we feel happy. We choose in faith to worship the Lord. We choose to say thank you all because of Jesus. We choose to praise God and find our joy in Him because Jesus is the gospel. He is good news. He is the ultimate source of the river that flows into us and He gives us life even when the circumstances don't appear to work in our favor. The gospel is flowing, a flowing river. Choosing to rejoice is like looking back up that river and remembering where the source is or who the source is, to be more accurate. It comes down from God himself, and we choose to rejoice in him, even when things are bad. So this Thanksgiving Sunday, this Thanksgiving weekend, it's a wonderful weekend to do exactly that. And of course, not just this weekend, but every day. So let me encourage you, look back up that river, You see it flowing, but where is it coming from? It's coming from God himself. It's coming from Jesus Christ. And so give thanks this weekend for everything that God has given to you. Give thanks for even good happenings, by the way. Thank God for that. But remember, our joy is not ultimately tied to good happenings, but to Jesus Christ, who is our good news and the ultimate source of our joy. Well, why don't we just pause and maybe silently um, praise God, thank Him, and I invite the worship team to come, and uh, we'll finish by doing exactly that, giving praise to God. But let's just be silent for a moment. So this morning, this Thanksgiving Sunday, Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for giving your life. And you did it because you wanted us to have your joy, an eternal relationship with you. To have your joy, your peace, your hope, your love, to grow in it, and to have it for all eternity. And so we say, thank you, Jesus. Help us to be people who are full of your joy, who are anchored in, tethered into your joy through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you, Pastor Dan. Would you join with us in singing if you want to stand? <laughs> 